come. Walk down the winding path. Don't mind the spooks and monsters. They stay hidden within the trees. There are mysteries in this world that you need to know, and paranormal truths that need to be told. Come, step up into the caravan, where we share tales of old, as well as new accounts about things you thought only existed in your nightmares. As the days grow darker and the nights turn cold, we welcome you down this twisting road. Follow the glow and the music in the air. Tis Lortober, and we have stories to share. A shout-out to our patrons. We appreciate your support. Jose, Jake, and Natalie Renee. Joseph and Jim. Kadrick and Donna. Victoria, too. Thank you so much. I appreciate you. Don't forget to stop by our website and find us on all social media platforms under the Caravan Library of Lore. And without further ado, tonight's guest, Ken Gearhart. Ken is a world-famous cryptozoologist who has investigated reports of mysterious beasts from around the world and appeared on TV programs including Missing in Alaska, Monster Quest, and Ancient Aliens. He is also the author of Encounters with Flying Humanoids and Big Bird, Modern Sighting of Flying Monsters, A Menagerie of Mysterious Beasts, and more. He's also co-author of Monsters of Texas, and he lectures across the U.S. You can visit him online at kengearhart.com. Thank you so much for coming inside the caravan. I'm really excited to have you here with me tonight. I would love to turn back the clock and figure out what was the spark that lit your cryptozoology fire. Wow. Well, first of all, uh, thank you so much for having me on, and it's an honor and a pleasure to be here with you. Yeah, uh, I get to ask that question a lot. Obviously, uh, it's an unconventional lifestyle <laughs> pursuit, if you will. <laughs> but I guess the spark uh, happened when I was, uh, you know, about eight or nine years old. You know, up to that point, I was very much interested in animals and creatures. Mm -hmm. I had a lot of exotic pets growing up, a uh, caiman, which is a small alligator basically, and I collected mm -hmm. snakes and salamanders and all types of creepy crawlies. So <laughs> my father was a forestry professor. We spent a lot of time in the outdoors. But um, I also loved monster movies, of course, growing mm -hmm. up, Godzilla movies and all the old sci-fi horror classics. So when I first heard about Bigfoot, uh, and I remember vividly, I was watching uh, cartoons one Saturday morning, probably Scooby-Doo, I'm not sure. But uh, <laughs> during a commercial break, there was a little short news segment where they talked about Bigfoot. And they showed oh, wow. the famous Patterson-Gimlin footage, mm -hmm. and they showed some guys holding plaster casts of giant human-like footprints. And something just clicked. I thought it was the most amazing thing I'd ever heard, that there could be this real-life monster, some giant human-like creature running around in the woods of North America. So um, it wasn't long before I was down at the local library getting my little grubby hands on every big <laughs> Bigfoot book I could find for kids at that time. My mother was very supportive, 
and she used to tell me stories about the Yeti and the what she called the West Virginia Mothman. She also traveled quite a bit. She was a travel agent and was very adventurous. And so she took me on amazing vacations when I was young. You know, I traveled around the world to Australia and Africa, oh, South wow. America, Asia. And wherever we went, I was always, even as a kid, I was researching the legends of local monsters and creatures because every culture has them. For example, right. in Australia, there was something called the Bunyip, which is kind of like a lake monster, an Aboriginal legend. Hiking this Swiss Alps, I was reading about a creature called the Totzelworm or Springworm, which is like a modern dragon-like creature that supposedly oh, wow. lives in the mountains. And then when I was 15 years old, I vacationed at Loch Ness in Scotland. And, of course, I spent the most of my time there hiking around the lake with a little 8 millimeter movie camera that I had and <laughs> interviewing the local people. And so I started field research at a young age. So it's really just been a lifelong passion of mine. I never planned wow. to make it a career. It's just been something <laughs> right. kind of obsessed with. Yeah, about 20 years ago, I got very lucky in terms of being able to network with people via the Internet and finding other Bigfoot researchers, and then I started writing books and appearing at conferences, doing talks. And then in 2006, I got a break with the Travel Channel, and uh, I met a producer from Travel Channel, and they put me on a show called Legend Hunters. Ever since there, it's just, ever since that time, it's just been a, it's been a great ride, Anne. I really, I really love what I do, and I just feel very blessed. That's amazing. So do you still have the footage from when you were 15 interviewing people at Loch Ness? Sadly, no. We had, uh, for years, we had boxes, or I had boxes of 8-millimeter films. This was back in the probably the 80s that I took with me. But I was sadly very irresponsible when I was just out of high school and stuff and moving, <laughs> moving around. Yeah. And uh, I didn't take very good care of my belongings. And, uh, I, you know, there's a couple of surviving uh, reels that I have. Uh, one of me swimming in the Amazon River when I was about nine years old. Yeah, watching the Havaro tribe do blowgun demonstrations. And I have another film of me in the Galapagos Islands, I believe. Yeah, those those might be the only two that survived. But, you know, I've been kicking myself for many years, wishing I still had that footage somewhere. I just, I guess I either right. lost track of it or, or I don't know what happened to it. Yeah, I mean, those things happen. There's definitely a lot of things that I wish that I still had. But, you know, you're young and you move a lot and things get lost. Yep. And again, when we're younger, we don't often appreciate. Oh, you yeah. want to hold on some things you just want to hold on to, even if you're not, you know, at the time, I don't think I had a projector, which was part of the problem. You know, you don't, mm. you got a bunch of uh, films, but no way to project them. They become less important yes. <laughs> in the <laughs> short term. It's like, oh, what am I going to do with these? But, you know, what's funny, Anne, is I'm, I'm kind of old school when it comes to technology. So mm -hmm. I still have a working VCR and I have a giant tub nice. full of VHS tapes with lots of old cryptozoology documentaries from oh, the 80s and 90s cool. and I've yeah. got cassette tapes and a cassette player for my old tunes <laughs> and yeah I, I do hold on to some of that old analog tape stuff but yeah. uh, floppy disks you know <laughs> all that, all that stuff <laughs> kind of a mini that hoarder that is so awesome I mm. love that gosh it was either last year or the year before I can't remember but I got a typewriter Mm -hmm. And I actually have a book that I'm writing and I'm doing it all on the typewriter. Oh. And then if I 
like Stephen King, so, right? Right. Uh, it, yeah, very old school. Stephen King, maybe yeah. Anne Rice types that way. I don't know. That's great. And, and I love it. I love it because I remember being a really little kid. I grew up with my grandparents and my dad, and I found my grandpa's typewriter in the basement. And, oh, I just spent my afternoons writing down there, you know, in the basement, typing away. And then I love to still write with, like, an old quill pen, the ink, and then the oh, wax seals. Yeah, awesome. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's yeah. cool. Handwriting has become a lost art. Uh, it really has. Sometimes I write cursive. People look at it and wow, it's like, especially <laughs> yes. the kids, they don't teach cursive anymore in school. So it's like, what mm-hmm. is that? You know, they can't. Oh, even- yeah. <laughs> yes, no, it's so true. It's so true. Because even with my own children, definitely learned that they don't teach it in school. And so I've tried to. And they've come up to me and like, Mom, well, you wrote in cursive, we can't read this. So when they did that, I was like, you know, I need to teach them because my handwriting, I still do cursive. And then any letters from our grandparents, if they want to be able to read them later, they need to learn. So I definitely, definitely love all the old things. Yes, same here. We're old souls. <laughs> yes, so true, so true. And speaking of old film, you mentioned monster movies. Can I ask which ones were your favorite? We're talking about the old ones, the classics? Yeah, the ones that you loved when you were a kid. Well, like I said, I loved Godzilla movies, and I remember my mom took me down to the local library one Saturday. They were showing a bunch of kids several Godzilla movies, and I was like the resident Godzilla expert, so all the other kids would ask me, <laughs> You know, what's that? Oh, that's Mothra, and this is such and such. I think my favorite one of all those was Godzilla versus the Smog Monster, and uh, also one called War of the Gargantuas, which is kind of like a, it's got these kind of Bigfoot-like creatures that are 300 feet tall. One's brown and one's green. Any Bigfoot fan out there will know (laughs) what I'm talking about, but it wasn't quite King Kong, but that was fun. And then I love Creature from the Black Lagoon. My mom made me a creature costume one Halloween, and I wore it proudly. And um, <laughs> oh, cool! Yeah, I mean, you know, all of those. I still watch those, man. I love going down to the library. Just, you know, like what did I find last week? Uh, it was, uh, you know, the Beast from Twenty Thousand Leagues and Curse of the Cat People, and all. You know, nice. <laughs> oh, old, that's so cool. The Fly, the original Fly. I love all those old. You know, they're kind of cheesy, but they're <laughs> they're just so fun, right? They are, definitely. My dad, he was into all that stuff. So that's where I started when I was watching, you know, the old horror films. And then as I grew up, I got into, you know, all the other ones and love the vampire movies. Of course. Um, yeah. What's your, <laughs> yeah. What's your favorite vampire movie? Oh, well. I know there's so many, but I mean, do you have one that kind of. I really feel like. And it's so, it feels so cliche when I say it, but Interview with a Vampire. I know oh, that a lot a of people movie. love the book. It, yeah. it is. And there's a lot of beauty. There really is behind the filming, the colors, the way that it's portrayed. I find a lot of beauty in it. And I think that that will always be hands down my favorite. That's a good one. I've got, I'm not as much into vampires as you are, obviously, but I, I still like them. <laughs> My two favorites are both from about the same era. I love the uh, the original Salem's Lot that was a TV mm. miniseries with mm-hmm. David Soule and James Mason. And also I like the 1979 version of Dracula with Frank Langella, Laurence Olivier, and Donald Pleasance. That's a great kind of older Dracula take. But there are a lot of good ones. It's hard to choose sometimes. It's true. It's so true. And also, so speaking of favorites, so your mom took you all over the world traveling? 
Yeah, she did. She was a travel agent. You know, honestly, Anne, my mother died of cancer when she was young or when, mm-hmm. when I was young. But I, I think she kind of realized and taught me the value of how short life is. So she really, she traveled all over the world, took me on a lot of the vacations. But, you know, even without me, she went on African safaris and she hiked oh. the Himalaya. And so it was very inspiring. And yeah, so, uh, she, she, you know, she kind of instilled that love of travel in me. I understand the, the economics that people deal with, particularly in this day and age. But, you know, I often hear people say they'll talk about a place that they've never been with fondness. And, you know, someday I'd love to go there. And it's like, mm. well... Well, go. <laughs> <You know? Yes. laughs> I know it's easier said than done with the with the pandemic going on. But, man, I really people should really travel if they want to, because there's so much that you can experience and learn. And it's just such. Yeah, there's such profound experiences traveling to new places. Anyways, I don't know. It really is. I mean, <laughs> it's it's one of those things where I for the longest time, I didn't know if I would. It's something that I really wanted to do. And then in 2019, I did start to travel. I went to Arkansas. I've been to Ohio multiple times now. And and recently, I was so excited because it's a small thing, but something that we don't have here in Oregon is the lightning bugs. So I marveled at them online all the time. And I always, you know, you read about them in in poems and books and, and all these things. Well, finally, just last month, I was actually able to go through a field of them. And it was just amazing. Amazing. Yeah, yeah they're magical. They they are really cool. They really are. They really are. So do you have a favorite trip that your mom took you on that really has stayed with you? Well, I mean, the one trip she and I took together, she took me out of school for a, a month when I was going into sixth grade, which and I had to bring my homework along. So don't. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> she, she obviously she's like, OK, get your assignment to your teacher. We circumvented the globe, so we uh, we traveled to Hawaii and then Australia, and I was mostly in the interior of Australia in the outback. I got to climb Ayers Rock, which is a kind of a famous monolith out there, and then we went to Thailand, Bangkok, and I got to visit the Temple of the Golden Buddha, and I, we also saw uh, singer Rod Stewart, who was staying at our hotel at the time, which was kind of fun, wow. and then we traveled to... Greece, and we took a Greek cruise, which included all the famous Crete, Rhodes, Mykonos, Turkey. That was amazing. And uh, then Tunisia, and visited the ruins of Carthage, then London. And then uh, after London, we uh, we headed home. So that was cool because I've actually, we got to, again, fly around the, the globe, which uh, a lot of people don't have an opportunity to do. Right. Kind of an amazing thing. That really is. That really is. Wow. What an experience. So before I ask you these other questions, one thing I'm kind of curious about is, can you give a brief history of the field of cryptozoology, such as, was it always connected to the paranormal, or was there a point that it kind of changed and started going down that road? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, So the history of cryptozoology dates back to the 1950s. And prior to that, there was something called romantic zoology, which basically meant that zoologists, some zoologists would speculate about, you know, legendary animals and whether, you know, they could be real and things like the Yeti and oh, wow. sea serpents, as they were called back in the 19th century, these great mm-hmm. sea monsters. And then, but then in the 1950s, uh, there were two zoologists, a guy named Dr. Bernard Hovelmans, who was Belgian, French, Scottish uh, zoologist and animal collector named Ivan Sanderson. 
And uh, they kind of inspired each other, started this kind of this pursuit called cryptozoology. Oh, and wow. they started started writing books about these things like the Yeti. And, um, uh, you know, there are a number of uh, mysterious animals that you can find in different aboriginal folklore around the world and uh then so that kind of stayed kind of stayed straight zoology or romantic zoology for many years and then probably about the early 1970s ivan sanderson had moved to the united states and he started something called the society for the investigation of the unexplained he was based out of new jersey and he began to write about and explore other mysteries including ufos and the bermuda Mm. triangle and different things and so I think that was kind of the genesis where, uh, because he was an established cryptozoologist, where he began to kind of delve into some of these paranormal topics. And then in the 1970s, and I think a lot of this was a cultural shift, you know, there was a great interest in things like Bigfoot and the Loch Ness Monster, but also, of course, the Bermuda Triangle and UFOs and paranormal ghost activity. And I think a lot of that stuff started kind of getting grouped together on TV shows like In Search Of and in books. And mm-hmm. um, and then there were early, uh, there was a cryptozoologist named Lauren Coleman, who's still around. He's one of the, the icons of the field. And uh, he mm-hmm. began to write books about cryptids and cryptozoology, but he would also write about some pretty far out things like winged serpents and um, spooky spots like the Bridgewater Triangle and the Dover Demon and things like that. So mm. Mothman. So, you know, it all kind of in the 70s, I think, kind of a strange time anyways but i think a lot of that began to evolve in the 70s and also the you know when people ask about the bigfoot ufo connection or alleged connection a lot of that speculation began in the early 1970s a place in pennsylvania called chestnut ridge there were a lot of ufo reports and an Mm. investigator named stan gordon who's still around he began to investigate bigfoot sightings in that seemed to be in conjunction with these ufo reports So that's where a lot of that, you know, a lot of those accounts kind of stem from. So, so yeah, it's been an it's been an evolution. You know, now I'm still an old school cryptozoologist, and so I try to adhere to the traditional interpretation, which is it's based on zoology, and there you bring in other disciplines like legends and and folklore and anthropology because all of it is kind of connected in some way. But I understand there are other people that kind of take more of a a paranormal interpretation and mm-hmm. try to see if there are connections between some of these different phenomenon and so forth. So, Right. So, okay. So that makes me curious out of all the cryptids that you've heard of, which ones do you feel are the most probable and the least? Well, I'd say that uh, definitely going back to zoology, the most probable ones are the ones that make sense in the paradigm of the natural world and the fossil record. So, for example, things like Bigfoot actually Mm. did exist dating back six or seven million years ago. There were hominids, upright, bipedal apes that, Mm. you know, most of them were pretty small, but some of them were kind of robust that were walking around Africa and then later Asia and and Europe. And um, so because things like Bigfoot did exist, we know for a fact up until, you know, tens of thousands of years ago, that one seems, you know, more probable in terms of being a, a biological reality. Also, a lot of lo- uh, lake monsters uh, like the Loch Ness Monster, the Lake Champlain Monster, Ogopogo in Canada, which all have very similar descriptions. Those sightings seem to resemble 
you know, prehistoric animals, large aquatic marine mm-hmm. animals that were presumed to have go- that are presumed to have gone extinct. So those those could still be around. Thunderbirds, which is something mm-hmm. I specialize in in the field. Giant reports of giant winged creatures, and wow. again, some of those descriptions, many of them match prehistoric winged, you know, animals, ancient birds called teratorns that were massive and things like that. So I mean, all of those kind of make sense to me because you can find the physical descriptions match known species, even if they are presumed to be extinct. The ones that seem less probable to me in terms of at least less sensical are things like the Mothman, the Dogman, Goatman, anything that combines an animal with a man, Pigman. I've investigated a Pigman. That's a real thing, supposedly. Um, Because (laughs) <laughs> because those archetypes don't make any sense. You cannot – there's nowhere in the evolutionary world where you would have, you know, sort of a reclamation of these ancient – I mean, for example, you know, dogman, which I know is a popular topic right now. The reality of a dog-like features combined with hominid features is – it doesn't make any sense because the last common ancestor we shared with dogs was about 80 million years ago. It was something known as a Boreo-Eutherian. It was this little possum-like animal. And since that time, those lineages have split and diverged in opposite directions. Carnivores and canids and dogs evolved one way. They're quadrupeds and so forth. We evolved another way from primates. You know, there's there's no reason that those two lineages would reconnect in any way. It just doesn't make any sense. So I view a lot of, I'm not saying that those cryptids or creatures do not exist in some form, because I know there's a lot of eyewitness accounts and I've interviewed very sincere, credible witnesses, but I view those as more of a paranormal or metaphysical phenomenon, whatever they are. I don't think they are, they're animals that have been undiscovered. I think they are manifestations or apparitions or or something Mm -hmm. along those lines. And since, since I'm not really a paranormal investigator per se, it's hard for me to speculate much beyond that. Right. So building off of that, if you had the ability, if somebody said, okay, here are all these cryptids, they are proven and they're they're standing right here in front of you, but one of them is extinct. Which one do you think would be the greatest loss to have found it too late? Oh, gosh. I guess it would have to be something like Bigfoot or Sasquatch mm-hmm. or, the, you know, the Yeti, which is probably uh, an Asian cousin, because these are, for lack of a better term, they're, they're our distant cousins. They're obviously hominins or hominids. Uh, they're bipedal. They, they, you know, I'm not saying there are direct ancestors. Right. Uh, based on the physical descriptions and behaviors described, they don't seem to fit. And, and honestly, our the evolutionary tree has become much bushier in recent years due to a lot of discoveries in the in the field of paleoanthropology. So it's it's kind of like a it was a different lineage of hominid that evolved perhaps you know a couple million years ago, but still it's very much like us in a lot of ways. I mean, it's you know basically a great ape, but it's perhaps has a measure of intelligence that might be a little bit greater than than known apes. You know, I think we could learn a lot about ourselves, and I think that would be the mm. tragedy of, of the loss would be that, you know, how much we could learn about ourselves and, and the evolution of, of Homo sapiens from, from a discovery like that. Right. It's funny because I've been in this field for a while, and I've heard all kinds of stories, and it's not that I never disbelieved anybody. I never paid a whole lot attention to Sasquatch. Until I had a recent experience myself, 
<laughs> and oh, it wow. just kind of came up and slapped me in the face where it's like, hey, this is what you're going to think about now. And so slowly I've been kind of doing a little bit of research and uh, it was a scary experience. So it's still really new for me. But I was learning about something called, it, there was a show that I was watching and they were trying to search for Sasquatch. And they talked about something called eDNA. Mm. And mm-hmm. I was curious if there has been anybody that you know of or studies or findings where they've taken the eDNA from a print and if anything has come back as an unknown hominid. Oh, that's a great question. And actually, there have been recent discussions that I've had with other uh, serious Bigfoot researchers about that. There have not, to my knowledge, been any there, there certainly hasn't been any DNA that's been described as an unknown hominid or or something that would validate the existence of Bigfoot up to this point. I believe there have been some, in fact, I know there have been some eDNA samples collected regarding certain mystery hominins. The testing, as you can imagine at this stage, is still very expensive, frankly, and a lot of Bigfoot investigators don't have a lot of money and don't have resources and funding like universities and stuff. So so that's one of the challenges ahead of us. But that's actually kind of the plan that's been proposed is that, you know, if fresh Bigfoot tracks can be found, environmental DNA is um, basically it's a new burgeoning field where by scientists can take a soil sample or a water sample or even an air sample and they're oh, able wow. to filter out any biological material from that sample and then map or sequence the the genomes of any species that's been in contact with that soil that water that air within you know a reasonable period of time i think it degrades like in water like after 2 weeks or 20 days or something like that mm-hmm. so so yeah that is that could potentially be our key to proving that Bigfoot exists. Now, I had an idea to just go out and start randomly collecting water and soil samples at different spots where Bigfoot researchers spend a lot of time looking. It was pointed out to me that maybe that was a little bit of a scattershot approach. And the way to go would be exactly what you described, which is if someone found a fresh Bigfoot track that looked very promising, Mm -hmm. take the soil sample from directly under that track and then get it tested. But then again, you know, that that is conceivable in terms of becoming a, a viable project in the future. But there will have to be some funding involved because to get a laboratory to, you know, to sequence whatever species or whatever DNA can be found in, in a particular sample is going to be costly. And also the lab has to be kind of set up for it because to my understanding, DNA labs, they use things called primers, uh, mm-hmm. which are basically help them kind of, it's like a, a template or a roadmap that helps them identify the types of species they're expecting to find. So you would mm-hmm. have to have a lab that was already set up with the type great ape and hominid primers. Mm-hmm. To, so, it, you know, it can be done. It's feasible. And I think it gives us hope. But, I, th- you know, I think we're probably a, a few steps away yet. Okay. Wonderful. Well, gosh, thank you for that. It's fascinating. My mind has been uh, nonstop when it comes to this stuff recently. <laughs> now, you've read a lot of reports and you've talked to a lot of people that say that they've experienced something with Sasquatch, right? Oh, yeah. I've interviewed hundreds of witnesses. <laughs> What do you think percentage of Sasquatch presenting more docile behavior versus violent behavior? I would say in my experience that there's a certain way you have to look at it in terms of behavior and how that's interpreted. So we literally have none or almost none accounts 
unless you look at some very old accounts, of Bigfoot actually physically harming people. Very, very few accounts of Bigfoot attacking, physically confronting, attacking, and assaulting people. Those are very rare, rare stories. However, there are many stories of Bigfoot displaying aggressive behaviors like throwing rocks at people, chasing people, screaming, pushing trees over, and those things. Those could very well be territorial demonstrations, just like many animals do. Uh, there are certain animals that will curl their lips back, uh, you know, and kind of show right. you their teeth or <laughs> growl or, you know, that's kind of my interpretation is I think that Bigfoot, Sasquatch, that they are frankly as afraid of us as we are of them, but they will mm. demonstrate territorial aggressive behaviors that are intended to scare us away. I don't think that means that they're going to chase us, hunt us down, bludgeon mm. us and drag us off into the woods. <laughs> Not now because right. of that. And in fact, most people that have encountered Bigfoot, it seems like Bigfoot often is just in a hurry to get away, to mm. move away as quickly as possible. So so I don't view wow. Bigfoot as a dangerous – I mean, I, I you know, I respect it just like any large animal, like a bear. You know, you'd be certainly a mountain right. lion. But I don't think they are actively hunting us or anything along those lines. I think that is – I think that's a, more of a sociological phenomenon where uh, by people mm. want to make these things into monsters because for whatever reason, right. they, are, they are scary to us. They're big. They're unknown. They're human-like <clears throat> and so forth. So Wow. Okay. I like to think about what if a lot. And I'm curious, for example, it's a beautiful night. The stars are out. You've gone outside. It's peaceful. It's calm. It's quiet. You're drinking coffee. You hear something in the distance. And so you kind of just sit there and you hear that it's coming towards you. And it sounds very large. And then you can see that there is a Sasquatch creature that has now stepped through the tree line and it's staring at you. What do you do? Well, I would try to get proof, however I could. Uh, certainly, I would document it if I could, if I had a camera or a video or something like that. I don't know if I would try to befriend it, per se, because I don't know if that's something that's even possible. I wouldn't run away in fear. <laughs> I, I know this for a fact, because... A handful of occasions where I thought I might have been close to a Bigfoot or a Sasquatch, and I, I tried to get as close to it as possible, even though I couldn't see. It's my job, so I'm, I'm trying to find evidence. You know, I don't think I would try to speak to it in English or anything. I know people have – there have been claims of people out there who think they can befriend Bigfoot and – communicate with it but that's sort of anthropomorphic thinking so um so i don't know i you know i would love to i've never seen one i would love to i've i believe i've been close to them and i've heard them but uh i would love to have a sighting but i would certainly figure out a way to either get good photographic evidence or maybe even get close enough although this is highly improbable to get close enough to pull some of its hair out or (laughs) (laughs) right right Skin off its toe or something. I don't know. (laughs) Oh, that's great. So just for fun, I'm going to ask, let's say somehow you guys were able to talk, actually able to ask two or three questions. And once you ask these questions, it's gone. That's it. This is your chance. Wow. What are you going to ask? These are pretty deep questions, Anna. (laughs) Yeah, they're great questions. It was very philosophical. Um, What are you? That would be a tough question even for humans to answer. You know, a lot of us don't yeah. <laughs> understand. <laughs> what are you? Where do you come from? What do you want with humanity? That's awesome. There'd be more. But I mean, those are the, they seem like a, a pretty logical first three, I guess. Right. No, that's perfect. I love it. Thank you. Of course.
Those would also be good questions if you ever encountered an alien, right? Yes. <laughs> what are you? So where true. are you from? What are you going to do to me? Yes. <laughs> exactly. Okay. So now I wanted to touch on your books too. You've written so many. And I am curious which book, if you can choose, is there a favorite, number one? And number two, is there one book when you were writing it that had the most profound effect on you or where you learned the most while you were writing it? Wow. These are some great questions. So I've really only written six books. Five and a half, perhaps, because I co-authored a book with Nick Redfern. I love them all. They're like my children. They're all very different, like I guess like children might be. <laughs> right. Personalities. My favorite is usually my most recent, which in this case would be this The Essential Guide to the Loch Ness Monster and Other Aquatic Cryptids. I don't know. I, I, I really enjoyed writing all of them. A Menagerie of Mysterious Beasts, which was published in 2016, is a fun book because it is a contains a variety of a lot of different cryptids that I've investigated from Bigfoot and the Minnesota Iceman to mm-hmm. Thunderbirds to the Loch Ness Monster to Chupacabra to, you know, the Beast of Javodan. I mean, I like the diversity of that book because it has a lot of different topics and things that I've investigated. What I'm proudest of, perhaps, is The Essential Guide to Bigfoot, which I published in 2019, and um, it's taken me my whole life to write a Bigfoot book, but uh, it's been very well Mm -hmm. received by the Bigfoot community in general. You know, I interviewed a lot of impressive investigators and people to to Mm. put that book together, and it's, yeah, I'm I'm very proud of it because it's, you know, looking back, there's probably a couple things I could have tweaked. Uh, I think for people that are interested in the subject, it's it's not a real complicated book. It's kind of a primer, so it's an introductory book. It's very accurate in terms of the information, usually from the source. It's uh, objective. It's consensus opinions of a lot of investigators. So one of the problems with Bigfoot information these days is there's just so much misinformation out there mm-hmm. on the Internet and TV shows and things. And a lot of people will just latch on to that bad information and they'll you know they're they're unaware that they don't have the maybe the best information regarding a certain theory or or piece of evidence or whatever right you know and i would be one of those people that would fall into that camp because i'm so new to it and i don't necessarily know exactly what is I'm just new to it, so I would definitely love to get my hands on that book for sure, because after my personal experience, it's definitely opened my eyes, and, and I'm ready to <laughs> look into into that more for sure. And it's all speculation, Anne. I mean, I tell people, I start every presentation by explaining how I'm not an expert. Nobody is, you know, since we, we don't have a, a Bigfoot in captivity somewhere, but... Um, right. But I've been studying the topic for decades, done field research all over the continent, and I've worked with all of the leading investigators, past and present. And so I have a pretty good, grounded, big picture view of, of so I speculate, but it's very well-educated, well-informed speculation is what I tell people. But I don't have too many definitive opinions that I push hard on, you know, I, I, people are entitled to sort of form their own opinions and judgments. Mm -hmm. I do constantly challenge people that claim that Bigfoot is paranormal because my experience and the evidence that I've seen and experienced over decades does not indicate that. And uh, I find that most people that are trying to make that connection, frankly, just haven't put a lot of work into going through all of the evidence and stuff. 
right or going out in the field like you have and experiencing it now some have and i i you know i can't i can't walk in anyone else's shoes and so you know people tell me well <laughs> i saw bigfoot dissolve into thin air or i saw a bigfoot with glowing lights orbiting right. around it or whatever i can't you know i don't want to like you said earlier I, you know i don't want to disrespect people or, or call mm-hmm. them you know challenge their integrity or anything like that but right. i can't i can't explain those experiences but those types of experiences are are actually very minuscule in terms of the, all of the evidence and sightings and encounters that people have had. So, you know, that's my perspective is that if Bigfoot were paranormal, that there would be a lot more of that. Now, there's mm-hmm. there's always a sort of an other argument. So mm-hmm. like uh, recently, uh, an investigator that kind of takes that view that Bigfoot's paranormal and said, well, mm-hmm. People that have paranormal Bigfoot experiences, they're not going to come to you. They know that you don't advocate any of that. So they're going to come to someone else that, you know, that will, which, you know, mm. that's it's not a bad argument. But um, but funnily enough, I still do get a lot of uh, people that have had experiences that are pretty far out that still get in touch with me. And I'm I'm open and I'm always willing to listen and, and kind of consider it, you know, so. Wow. So, yeah, it's a, you know, it's tough. It's a, these are very polarizing topics. You know, one of the things I like to study is psychology. I think there's a lot of psychology sort of ingrained in terms of, again, how our perception and how everyone is a little bit different and our different biases and things. So, you know, there is basically a there's a clinical definition for it. But essentially, there's you know, there's a human condition whereby all of us want to find sort of meaningful connections in things that may or may not be related. But there, right. there's a human tendency to want to connect things mm-hmm. in a meaningful way sometimes. And I think that's particularly this pertains to apophenia. That's what it's called. Apophenia. Mm. I'm sorry. Okay. Where, you know, we're dealing with things like Bigfoot or the paranormal. These are very, very polarizing, very highly charged ideas or concepts that there are things in our world that we just do not understand yet. And right. so it makes sense to me that there would be some people that would want to connect these things that we don't know in some way. It makes it easier for the human mind to sort of deal with this construct that there's one great mystery as opposed to there are a bunch of different types of mysteries, you know, <laughs> right? because that can be kind of overwhelming. But anyways, that's another form of speculation right there. That's all I'm doing. So who knows? Right. <laughs> so true. And I don't know if my next question is going to make sense, but I'm going to go with it. Go for it. Because I'm, I'm really curious because we were having a conversation about, and I didn't know, and I was fascinated to learn that whales were once land walking animals. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's the, that's the current theory and you know all scientific theories are subject to revision if some some new discoveries made but yeah that's true right currently. so do you think with Loch Ness Monster could there be any kind of connection with that where it kind of diverged and developed its own way or I feel like that's uh you're pitching me a softball because that's actually one of the uh things that I write about in my my newest book, The Essential Guide to the Loch Ness Monster. I don't <laughs> I, I don't push this too hard, but one possible theory, if the Loch Ness Monster exists, is that it could be a surviving type of ancient snake-like whale called a basilosaur. Oh. And um, because many of the descriptions of the Loch Ness Monster describe this giant serpentine animal with smooth skin mm-hmm. that moves up and down through the water, which is a mammalian characteristic. Just to explain that better to your listeners who don't know, 
So based on fossils that have been found in Pakistan and parts of the Middle East, uh, mostly there, we know that uh, during the Eocene epoch, which was like Mm -hmm. 40 to 50 million years ago, that there were these hoofed animals, artiodactyls is what you call a hoofed animal. They were different than a lot of the modern hoofed animals like goats and pigs and things, but they were the ancestors to all those animals. Some of them were carnivorous and they, they didn't eat leaves. They had sharp teeth and they eat other animals. Uh-huh. Even though they had, even though they had hoofs, then there was a species called Pachycetus, which was a small dog-like animal with hoofs that lived alongside oh, wow. waterways and probably ate fish and things. And then that species evolved into a larger species called Ambulocetus, which was like a really big, scary shape like an alligator, but it was like a mammal mm-hmm. had four paddles or limbs. And then Ambulocetus evolved into these bacillosaurs, and I think there was one other transitional species in there that. We we know of, but there's a pretty well-defined fossil record that shows how these hoofed animals began to adapt back into the water after a terrestrial living existence of millions of years and uh, Mm -hmm. eventually became whales. And most of this we know because of the ear bones, funnily enough. If you look at the ear bones in whales, which are designed to basically hear echolocation and things like that under the water, Mm -hmm. They found these same ear bones in these ancient hoofed animals. So that's kind of the wow the speculation there. But anyways, um, the Loch Ness Monster could, you know, a lot of people like to imagine that it's this giant marine reptile called a plesiosaur. I think if you look at the eyewitness descriptions, which there are thousands of them, they people really mm-hmm. describe something that looks more like an ancient type of whale. And particularly oh, wow. this, this basilosaur, which is a very serpentine, very long, doesn't look anything like modern whales. It was very, mm-hmm. very snake-like, but it was you know, maybe 40 to 60 feet long. So it was a huge thing. So. Oh, wow. That's fascinating. You know, one one other interesting aspect to this is that many of the people that have seen the heads of these monsters, like the Loch Ness Monster and others, describe the head as looking very horse-like or sheep-like. Wow. And uh, sometimes even having horns or whiskers or or manes of hair down the head. Well, again, that kind of goes back to that possibility of it being a hoofed animal, right? Because when we think of hoofed animals, we think of horns and antlers and mm-hmm. whiskers and things like that so i don't know it's all it's fun to speculate about who knows but yeah <laughs> no it's amazing the way that my mind works and the what if this and what if that and thinking about it it's just fascinating it is fun to talk about all this stuff yeah <laughs> same here <laughs> so okay i have one last question for you as we're coming up on the hour you have been cursed you are now going to transform into a were animal. Mm. But you don't have to just be. It doesn't have to be like a werewolf or a were lion. You get to choose. But mm. this is what it will be every full moon from here on out. What do you choose and why? Wow. That's a really <laughs> interesting question. So I'm going to turn into a I'm a shapeshifter. I'm going to turn into some other animal. Wow. I would say maybe a bird. Because, a werebird. Uh, For example, there is a Mexican and Texas tradition of a creature known as Lechusa. And Mm. Lechusa is a witch who shapeshifts into a giant white owl or a big bird and soars through the night sky. And, uh, you know, there are different interpretations, but she'll whistle or scream at you and you're not supposed to answer back, things like that. Mm. I guess the reason I'd say that is because I'd get to fly. (laughs) 
I've had I've had dreams where I've flown and uh, I love flying oh, wow. on airplanes and I just I don't know that would be pretty cool to be able to soar through the night sky so I'd say like an owl specifically because then you could be you know soaring through the night sky this great mm. nocturnal bird and I like owls they're cool so um <laughs> so yeah I guess that would be a good choice for me I don't know what I about love you? It. What, do you what, <laughs> what would you shape shift into oh gosh. It's always been a toss up for me because growing up, I always loved tigers. That was mm. my I love them. But as I got older, I definitely ended up more in the wolf camp. Mm. But then that kind of also goes back. It's a question that I've posed to everyone in the past on here is, OK, you're cursed and you're either going to be a vampire or you're going to transform into a werewolf. Well, I always chose vampire because when you look at the old movies and you're transforming into a werewolf, that looks painful. <laughs> <laughs> I'd rather just die once and get it over with and be a vampire and not have to do that transformation all the time. But werewolves are also really cool. So I, I think that I would just go with the traditional werewolf. That, that's a good one. I mean, I can't go wrong with a werewolf. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so true. You know, you're still an apex predator. You know, you're going to be able to outrun <laughs> pretty much everybody. And, uh, you know, you get the sharp teeth, the claws, the whole. That's right. The whole package. You know, I actually vampires typically don't fit into the purview of cryptozoology. But I was on a TV <laughs> show on History Channel called Unexplained, hosted by William Shatner. Mm. And they did an episode on vampires and werewolves. And they had me as one of the commentators. I had to do more research into vampires, obviously, than werewolves. And I'm not for a moment saying that there could not be some for all you haters out there. I'm not saying vampires don't exist. Who am I to say? Maybe they do. <laughs> you know, you find the legends and cultures all over the world, etc. But there is at least one scientific explanation, which I found quite fascinating, which is that in the olden days, people didn't always understand how decomposition worked. Mm. So, for example, in Eastern European countries, where, by the way, in some Eastern European countries, they will still dig up the graves of relatives that they think might be vampires oh, and wow. drive a wooden stake in the heart or chop off the head and burn the remains or whatever. But mm -hmm. back in the day, sometimes people would get buried and then you know, there would ru a rumor would start that this person was a vampire, if particularly if people mm. were, felt like they were being victimized in the village, and they would dig up the remains of said relative or person. And when they opened the coffin, the person would not be as decomposed as they thought it should oh. be, because mm -hmm. they were in uh, basically they were not the flesh was not being exposed to oxygen because they were buried under the ground and they were entombed. So they would often look very the skin would look sort of it would be pale, but it would look kind of moist or fleshy or plumpy or whatever mm -hmm. and so that at least some vampire legends may have sprung from the fact that you know that these corpses that were being dug up looked alive to some people they're like that person's oh. not dead look they're still so i don't know that's wow. a, at least kind of a fun <laughs> scientific explanation to explain some of the vampire stories but i right. thought it was interesting that in in some cultures in the world they are still very much convinced that there are vampires and that they will still wow. dig up the graves of people and uh chop off the head and so forth so it's a, <laughs> that's amazing so, yeah it is it's 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 fascinating but it's uh it's wow. an, it's an enduring legend and tradition for sure wow 
Yeah, because see, I thought that all of that would have stopped long ago. So to hear that there's people that still practice that today is just fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. And I I don't have my notes in front of me, but there was even, uh, I think as recently as like the 1990s, there was a story in a village somewhere in Eastern Europe that there was this vampire that these people had been attacked and they knew it was this guy that had just passed, this relative who had just passed away. And so I don't know, it was was pretty interesting that that kind of stuff is still going on in the world. Yeah, that's for sure. Well, goodness, this has been absolutely incredible. I can't thank you enough for coming on. Can you tell everybody where they can find you? Yes. Uh, thank you again for having me on, Anne. Great yeah. questions. Very uh, sort of unique <laughs> interview. I really enjoyed it. Oh, good. So uh, I have a website, KenGerhard.com. I'm also on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube. People can contact me any of those places if they'd like to reach out and get in touch. I also have an Amazon author page, Ken Gerhard, if people want to go and and check out my books. And I have all of my books are available in print, and some of them are also available in Kindle and audiobook formats. Wonderful. Thank you for having me on.
Light in the fire, burn on, dear flame. 